Adolf Hitler began his rise to power speaking in the beer pubs of Bavaria, small little gatherings, 100, maybe 200 people, and he would rant on and on for an hour, maybe longer, misfortune of Germany is the Jews, my intention is to rid Germany of the Jews, it's the Jews or the fatherland, I choose the fatherland, on and on, his rhetoric will go on. The story is told that at one of these such meetings, a gentleman sitting in the back, obviously Jewish, is listening with rapt attention. And when Hitler's done his whole speech at the end, the audience leaps to its feet in adoring applause, and this gentleman as well claps. And when the rest of the audience sort of settles down, he's still clapping. Hitler notices it, goes over to the man afterwards and says something like, don't you think I was serious when I said I intend to rid Germany of the Jews? Don't you think I'm serious when I say I will make Germany Judenrein? The man <clears throat> turned to Hitler and said, I believe you're serious, but you have to remember we're an old people. Many, many centuries ago, there was an evil King Paro. He enslaved our people. When God saved us from him, in honor of that, we have the beautiful celebration of Passover. The family gets together, we celebrate. Later on, there was an evil king, advisor to King Haman. He wanted to kill us, and when God saved us from him, we have the beautiful festivities Purim, celebrating, merrymaking. Then later came the story of Hanukkah when the Yevonim tried to kill us. In honor of that, we celebrate Hanukkah. But you, Hitler, you hate us more than all of them. And when God saves us from you, what a celebration they'll be. Now, my friends, there is no holiday that marks Hashem saving us from the Holocaust. There are no celebrations, no family gatherings. And the reality is that it was a devastation to our nation. And one of the questions that some people sometimes ask is, where was God? Where was Hashem? How could Hashem sit back and allow this Nazi beast to destroy His people? Where was Hashem during the Holocaust? And I really want to, before we even discuss that issue, I want to sort of put that into context. You see, the rest of the world we don't have a question on. Where the world was during those days, no one really asked, because we know the answer. That Eisenhower had detailed photographs of the tracks leading to Auschwitz is no secret. He did not act upon it. And the fact that the first concern that Hitler had and his high command had was when they entered Poland, how are we going to exterminate the Jews when the Polish peasants, the Lithuanians, the Ukrainians will obviously rise up in rebellion? Keep in mind the fact that the Jews lived in Poland almost 800 years. They had been business partners, their children had played together. These were friends. There's no way the Polish people would sit back and watch the atrocities. So the German high command did everything initially to hide it. There was no reason for them to hide it. It became very apparent that they had many willing accomplices. And very quickly it became known that in many situations, if you were guarded by a Nazi, you had half a chance. If it was a Ukraine, if it was a Lithuanian, you had no shot whatsoever. Interestingly enough, there's a Charlotte and Chuva Sefer written about the time by Rav Oshri. If you haven't read it, it's very, very well worth reading. It's translated actually into English, at least parts of it. And the reason why it's so astounding is because he says in an introduction that the typical way that you answer a shaila is you bring examples from the Gemara, you bring cases brought in the Rishonim. He says many of the questions you're going to see in these, in these pages have no basis in halacha because the questions were never asked before, the situations never arose, hence much of it is just based on my assumption of what Das Torah is. And interesting enough, he says in the introduction, his first meeting with what life was all about. He describes that when the Lithuanians heard that the Nazis were coming in, now keep in mind, he was in Kovna. It was a part of Lithuania. And when he, the Lithuanians heard that the Nazis were arriving, they didn't want to wait. Why wait for the Nazis to do the dirty work? They decided to take the task in their own hands. But he describes the fact that these were not soldiers, they didn't have guns, they didn't even have swords. 
they amassed. The farmers came with pitchforks, shovels, anything they could get their hand in, hands on, and they rampaged through the town from house to house, killing every Jew. By the time the Germans got there, there was nothing left. And Rav Oshay describes that he was a young Rav at the time. He found out that the Lithuanians were coming. He ran. He ran and hid in the woods. And when the rampage was done, the Lithuanians had left. He came back and he describes the scene. House to house, you saw the mutilated bodies, blood smeared on the walls, just mm. horrible, horrible destruction. And then he describes what it was like when he walked into the Kovna Rov's house. He describes that the Kovna Rov was a tzaddik of a man, a long white beard, and he was known as a tremendous, tremendous person. And apparently the Tulanians recognized the fact that this was the rabbi. So they treated him with a due honor. So Rav Oshari describes when he walks into the first corridor, he sees the blood smeared all over the walls and the floor. He sees the mutilated body of the Rav's wife, daughter, and then he walks into the Rav's study, and he describes the scene. He sees the Gemara open, Nida, Daf Lamed Gimel, Amad Beis, and he sees the Rav tied to the chair, and he sees the Rav's head on the floor over there. The Lithuanians knew that this was a Rav, and they chose that he should die an honorable death, hence they decided to decapitate him in his study. And this, I guess, we're accustomed to. We're no strangers to this. This is uh, part of our history. But the question that some people have is, I get it, that the Gentiles amongst whom we lived didn't defend us, I understand. That they quickly rose against us as well, I understand. But where was Hashem? How could Hashem allow it to happen? Where was God during the Holocaust? And that question, I think, requires some thinking about. But before we really deal with it, the question has a much deeper perspective because it's not just recent history. It's been a pretty rocky 2,000 years since the destruction of the second Besamekdash some almost 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> We've lived through every imaginable atrocity on the face of the planet. We lived through crusades, Spanish inquisitions, blood libels, pogroms, persecutions, mass murders, there seems to be no shortage of creativity when it comes to killing a Jew. As a matter of fact, if you ever imagine any method to torture a human being, if you ever think of any diabolical means to kill a human being, no one understands it was used on the Jews. And, ironically, it's not how it's supposed to be. If you read the Psukim, if you read the Torah's description, we are supposed to be the chosen nation, we're supposed to live in our own lands, surrounded by powerful protected borders. We're supposed to be a Am Hanifchar. We're supposed to be revered. We're supposed to be held in awe. And the Gentiles are supposed to fear us. And if you read the annals of the past 2,000 years of history, you don't quite see that. And, but ironically, if you look, you also see a very clear prophetic vision of exactly the past 2,000 years. It was no secret, and it wasn't hidden from any of us. And all you have to do, if you want to see a prophecy of those 2,000 years, read the words, The Tochacha lays it out very clearly. If you'll go in my ways, it'll be wonderful. You'll have rainfall in its time. The land will produce an abundance. The crops will last from year to year. You won't even have storehouses large enough to hold all the lands produced. And your borders will be secure. The Klyosrol are guaranteed tremendous, tremendous success. Im If you go in the ways of Hashem. However, the Pesukim are also very detailed, very graphic, and very clear. But if you don't, if you don't, then the rest of the Torah comes true. I'll send diseases, fevers, and illness. They'll waste away the flesh of your body. I'll sicken you and break your spirits. You'll plant and you'll harvest. That which is produced will be eaten by your enemies. And if that's not enough, then the Pesukim are more graphic. If that isn't sufficient, I'll repay your sin even further. I'll break your stubbornness. Your skies will turn to iron, the ground to copper. Your land will not produce. If that's not sufficient, I'll send an avenging sword. The Cherev no Chemis. An avenging sword, you'll flee to the cities, 
If that's not enough, if you don't get it, then you'll be afflicted by famine and hunger. You'll eat the flesh of your children. Your corpses will lie on top of the corpses of your avodazara, of your idols. Your land will be besieged by enemies. I'll lay desolate the land. You'll be scattered amongst the nations. If you still don't get it, you'll be chased there by sword. Those who remain amongst you, the few who remain, I will fill their hearts with fear. And then the Pesukim say very, very interestingly, I will send a goy az ponim. Az is a meter that's very hard to define. Sometimes it's roughly called audaciousness, audacity. It seems that one of the great joys that the Nazis had was to pull the beards off Jews, and the older the better. A goy az ponim who doesn't respect the elders, it'd be hard to find a more apt description of the Nazis when they would get their hands on a Jew. And again, it's all laid out, all very clear, all very much foretold long before the events happened. If you go in the ways of Hashem, it'll be wonderful, it'll be beautiful, and if not, it will be horrific. So, it's no secret to us, but there is something that I find very, very telling. It's a Rashi on that very first Pasuk. Rashi says something that's very, very strange. You see, the Pasuk says, it all pivots on one thing. If you go in my ways, if you go in my ways, you'll have everything. But if you don't go in my ways, it'll be horrible. But Rashi says, that's not pshat. Rashi says, doesn't mean if you keep the mitzvahs. It doesn't mean if you keep 612 mitzvahs. It refers specifically to im to you amelim b'torah. If you labor in Torah study, if you labor hard at your Torah study, then everything will be wonderful, everything will be great, and if you don't, then everything else will come to pass, the entire Tochacha will come to pass. And I think it's a rather fair and obvious question to ask on Rashi, how does he know that? What right does Rashi have to change from the very simple, obvious pshat in the Pasuk? The Pasuk told us, keep 613 mitzvahs, then everything will be wonderful, and if you don't keep 613, then it will be horrible. What right does Rashi have to change, not only to eliminate the rest, but it's one thing, and it's not even only the mitzvah of limerat Torah, it's specifically if you will labor in Torah. Limerat Torah is a mitzvah, one of many, but not only does Rashi say that's the pivotal point, but it's a particular way that you learn. And I think it's a rather fair question to ask, why does Rashi learn that? What right does he have to learn it? And what's pshat in this Rashi? And before we answer this, I'd like to ask a more basic question. And that is, that if you study history, there are many, many things that change. In fact, most things change. Cultures change, languages change, mode of dress, systems of government, belief systems. Everything seems to evolve, seems to change. The only one constant that seems to remain throughout history is that everyone hates the Jews. Everything else changes. The one immutable law of history is that everyone hates the Jews. And I think it's a very fair question to ask, gee, golly, why? And I always love to find the various answers to the question. Well, the answer is because the Jews are rich. But then you find many countries and many situations where Jews are poor. Well, that's because the Jews were in power. And then you find many counter-situations when the Jews were not powerful. Well, it's because the Jews were communists. Well, that's fine, except there are many Jews who are capitalists. Well, it's because they killed somebody's God. Well, go tell that to the Muslims. They don't believe in that God. And they have an awful lot to say about the Jews. And when you start going through all the various answers, you find that Jews were hated by pagans, by religious people, by secular societies. Fascists, fascists accuse them of being communists, communists accuse them of being capitalists, capitalists brand them as communists. It seems that everyone has got a beef with the Jews. And what's even stranger is that literally millions and millions of people for decades, for centuries, for millennium believe the most strangest things. Hundreds of millions of people firmly believed that Jews need to drink Gentile blood as part of their right. And the blood libel was something that was ongoing for a very long time. When the Black Plague broke out in Europe and killed approximately a third 
of the European population, everyone knew it was the Jews. It was a given. The Jews poisoned the wells. The Jews brought the Black Plague. But it wasn't just occasionally people fell for this stuff. It became common. As a matter of fact, Martin Gilbert, who is a historian, a secular historian, in his introduction to his book called The Jewish History Atlas, he says as follows, As my research into Jewish history progressed, I was surprised, depressed, and to some extent overwhelmed by the perpetual and irrational violence which pursued the Jews in every, every country and almost every corner of the globe. And he says he doesn't understand it. He says, though, if therefore persecution, expulsion, torture, humiliation, and mass murders haunt these pages, it is because they also haunt the Jewish story. You excuse me for a joke here. The joke is that Ignaz Paderewski, the premier of Poland after World War I, approached President Wilson to discuss affairs of state. And he said to President Wilson, Mr. Wilson, if our demands aren't met, I foresee serious trouble in my country. Why, my people will be so irritated that many of them will go out and massacre the Jews. To which the president said, well, what if your demands are met? Huh. Well, in that case, my people will be so happy that many of them will get drunk and go out and murder the Jews. It wasn't funny. It wasn't funny because it was real. And even though that's an anecdote, but that was an accurate description of Jewish history. And all you have to do is open an atlas and you'll see the most phenomenal, interesting insight. We have been expelled from every country we're ever in. In England in 1290, France in 1306, and later in 1394, Hungary in 1349, Austria in 1421, Germany between the 14th and 16th century, Lithuania 1445, Spain 1492, Portugal 1497, Bohemia, many of these countries, by the way, I don't even know where they are. I found countries I can't even find anywhere in an atlas they've kicked us out between the 15th century, 17th century, Jews were not allowed in Russia. If you go through, by the way, if you want to study Jewish history, I have a very simple exercise. All you have to do is on a nice Sunday day, go there to the UN, see all those beautiful flags unfurling in the wind, point to all those flags, and here's the challenge. Find me a flag of a country that didn't expel us. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why. The only flag of a country that didn't expel us either had no Jews ever there or didn't exist at the time. Because every single land that we were ever in either murdered us or expelled us. And at a certain point you've got to say, why? What's the deal? Jews are loyal, industrious citizens. They're not involved in crime. They're not difficult people. They do their business. If anything, they're a tremendous asset to the land. Gee golly, what's the beef? And I think it's a question that we have to deal with. And I'd like to share with you something that the Meshachachma says as pshat. The Meshachachma on the Tochacha, on the Chokosai, says as follows. He says, Let us delve into slightly the Shkachas Elyona Hashem's divine intervention and understand that which we can. And the Meshachachma explains that if it could be, Hashem had the following challenge in hand. And that was, for whatever which reason, the Jewish people had to remain in exile for an awfully long time. And if it could be, Hashem had the challenge of keeping the nation as a nation. And if you think about it, it's a rather unique situation. Find me an American Indian. I mean a real American-born Indian today. You know, with the full regal of the headdress and the, the moccasins and the whole deal. You're not going to find them. Why? Because despite the fact that they're on reservations, despite, despite the fact that there were literally millions, thank you, literally millions and millions of American Native Americans here in this country, you can't find a single one here today. Why not? Because quite simply what happens is, like any typical people, they meld into the landscape, they become no longer, and the Jewish nation should no longer be here because it's been 1900, maybe 2000 years, where we've gone from nation to nation which long ago should have assimilated. And the Meshachachma says that's a secret. What happens is we land on a new shores. And on those shores, we start developing a very powerful chashivas and importance for Torah 
And the Jewish way builds very strongly. Why? Because we find ourselves foreigners. We find ourselves foreigners, we find ourselves out of the culture, we return to Torah, to mitzvahs, and we become very, very strong. And he says that lasts for a generation, two, maybe three, and then it starts to wane, it starts to weaken, and before you know it, the generations become weaker and weaker until it gets to the point that the Jews are becoming like the nations amongst whom they live, and a powerful wind comes and says, Yehudi Atta, you're a Jew, blows them out of those shores, they find themselves in a totally different culture, no longer speaking the language, no longer be, being familiar with the ways of the land. <clears throat> they find themselves as foreigners in a foreign country. They readopt the Jewish way. They begin learning again. They begin growing again. They become stronger. And they become strong for a while. And then the process begins again. After a few generations, they start weakening. A few generations, they weaken more until they're starting to assimilate. A new wind comes. This one's stronger than the one before it. Blows them out to a new shore. And the cycle begins again. Says the Meshach that is Jewish history. Ironically enough, he says, the cause of it all is when the Jews reach a certain point. They become very, very strong. They're involved deeply in Torah study. They become very, very religious. And the children find that there's no new roads for them to create. You see, the nature of youth is to be a pioneer, to break new grounds. But if the fathers and the grandfathers are so strong and the children are looking for new things, new areas, they find that they cannot get further than what their parents did. They find other things that catch their interest. They begin turning off. The cycle begins. It becomes weaker and weaker until we find ourselves once again acting like the Gentiles. The wind comes, blows us out, and we find ourselves on different shores. Says Meshachachma, that is the secret to the why. Why is it that the Jew is hated? Why is it that the Jew is constantly kicked from land to land, shore to shore, says the Meshachachma? If you study any logic under the face of the sun, it will not answer the question. It is not because they're rich or poor or powerful or not, or because they killed somebody's God or didn't. There's only one reason. Because it's Ashkachas Hashem, it's Hashem's divine intervention keeping the nation alive. This is the method, this is the way to keep the Jews as a people, to keep them separate, to keep them as the Amanifcha, the chosen people. And my friends, I believe that that's really the answer to this Rashi. You see, Rabbi Saul Salanta said it, and it's a very, very powerful point. If a Jew is not learning a Tosa, says Rabbi Saul Salanta, there's no Yerushimayim. And you know why that is? It's really quite simple. There is a part of me that is pure nefesh elokis, that only wants to see Hashem, experience Hashem, that is only good, kindly, and giving. That's a full half of me. But there's another half of me that's the behema, nefesh bahami, that totally doesn't relate to anything spiritual, that only wants to answer its own appetites, and I am a mix. What I do all day long strengthens one part or the other. What I do most of the day is strengthen my nefesh bahami. If I go about my busyness of activities, if I go about eating, <coughs> making a living, everything that I do strengthens the physical. What strengthens the spiritual? The Chavos Lovos explains very little. The greatest nourishment, the most pure nutrient for the neshama is learning Torah, but not just learning Torah, being omel, the deep delving into, breaking ahead to understand it, digging deeper and deeper is bringing the greatest spiritual nourishment to my soul, hence it has the greatest effect, changes me to the greatest amount, because it is the single greatest rocket fuel for the neshama. And that's what Rashi is saying, if you'd like to know why Imbuchukosai pivots on a Melis Torah, because that's the secret to Jewish continuity. It's not about programs. It's not even about birthright. It's about one simple thing. If the Jewish nation are being ummel in Torah, they're laboring in Torah study, they're vibrant, they're alive, they're getting the nourishment, the nutrient, and they'll be ever clinging to Hashem. They'll cling to their ways. Everything else follows suit. Do you know why Bechokosai Telech pivots on Amelis Torah? Because learning Torah, laboring in Torah, is exactly what keeps the rest of the Torah. <clears throat> the reason why a Jew will either keep 612, the other mitzvahs, 
or not is based on how attached he is to learning, how involved he is in learning. That's his nourishment, that's his nutrient, and says Rashi, that's the pivot point. If the Jewish nation as a whole are laboring into our study, the nation is protected, the nation is holy, Hashem will guard this people, you'll have rainfall at its time and everything will be wonderful because you're keeping the tachlis, the reason for your creation. However, if you stop laboring in Torah, what's going to happen is the inevitable. You're going to start slipping, sliding throughout all the mitzvahs because you're not nourishing your soul and it's a very quick drop down that slippery slope and before you know it, you're going to have the rest of the tochah, the rest of the curses. Now my friends, there's a huge, huge lesson to us in that Rashi. You see, if you are a Gentile, it's okay to be okay. You're okay. That's okay. That's all you have to be. Surno says, See, I gave you today a brocha and a klola. Says the Surno, Hashem didn't say, you could be okay. You have two choices. If you're a Jew, your two choices are blessing, abundance, bounty, greatness, or klola, curse. There's no in-between, there's no mediocrity. You're either doing what Hashem wants, and you'll get tremendous bounty, blessing, everything will be astounding. However, if you don't, you're not just okay, you'll get klola, you'll get cursed, because the lesson is that if you're a Jew, okay is not okay. I remember there was a fellow, 10th grader in Rochester, he came from Russia, and he was doing very, very well. He was learning, he was steiging, a really solid guy. He gets off the phone one day, very distraught. And I was pretty friendly with him. I asked him, what's the story? So he told me, I was on the phone with my mother, and I said, Ma, why don't you come for Shabbos? And I'd be pressing her. You know, my parents aren't from. I knew he was about Shuva. <clears throat> my parents aren't from, so I was pressing her, pressing her. And finally she said to me, why do you want me to come so much? Why do you want me to come for Shabbos? I said, well, listen, to be honest with you, I thought maybe you'll see Shabbos in yeshiva, you'll see what it's like, and maybe you'll become more interested. She says to her son, but you know I'm not Jewish. But the problem was he didn't know that she wasn't Jewish. He said, what? You know I'm not Jewish, your father's Jewish, I'm not. Really? It turned out that he was not Jewish. So there was a tremendous issue over here. He's 15 years old, he's steiging, he's growing. So every guy in the base manager instantly said, well, that's it, we've got to bring him to a base dinner, we'll be, be Maguire, and we'll be a great Gert Sedek. what's the Shaila? We brought the question to Rabbi Dvirovitz, the Roshiva in Rochester. Rabbi Dvirovitz said, slow down, slow down. You see, if he is a guy, and he's Mechal Shabbos, so If he's a guy and he eats treif, so what? But if he's a Jew and he eats treif, if he's a Jew and he's Mechal Shabbos, it's a terrible, terrible tragedy. I don't recommend at all that you advise him to be Megayer. It's a very serious thing. In any case, I don't know who didn't listen, but the bottom line is, when a short amount of time, he in fact went to a basin, he was Megayer, and not long that after that, he also went off the derach. And I think it's a very interesting illustration of this concept, and that is that there's a very different standard that we as Jews are held to. It's not okay to be okay. And that means in plain, simple language, if you're a Gentile and you're just an average person doing your thing, there's no tremendous taina, there's no complaint against you. But if you're a Jew and you're just whatever, you know, I'm just a person, just hanging out, just trying to, you know, just do my thing, then it's a tragedy, and then it's a tragedy that has tremendous, tremendous repercussions because what's expected of you is greatness. Your choices are very simple. If you're Jewish, your choices are either you serve Hashem, you grow, you accomplish, and you'll get tremendous bracha. But if you don't, you're going to get klala, because that's the purpose of a Jew. The Jew is to be the ner legoyim, the Jew is to be the light of the nations, the Jew is the amaskula, and the Jew can't just be okay. And I think the Meshach Chochmah is teaching us a tremendous lesson. And this you sowed that the Jews are necessary for the survival of the planet is a big, big deal. And Hashem was so concerned with it that Hashem came up, if it could be, with a brilliant plan. 
how to keep this nation surviving, despite the fact that no other nation has ever gone into exile and remained more than a generation or two as a distinct people, despite the fact that we've been in exile almost 2,000 years and we remain a distinct nation. That's only, says Meshach because of Hashem's plan, that you will always be separate. The minute you start assimilating, the minute you start buying into that culture, the minute you start becoming more Gentile than the Gentile, you will be taken to other shores. And this Meshach was read in the Warsaw Ghetto. And it was a tremendous comfort and a tremendous solace to the people there when they read these words. Yachshov ki Berlin hi Yerushalayim. There'll come a time, says Meshachachma, when they'll start saying that Berlin is Yerushalayim. Prophetic words because he wrote it before they were saying it. But these words and the description of what Jewish history was to be like was read in the Warsaw Ghetto as a chizit. However, I believe that the reason why they found comfort in it was because they assumed that they would be washed up from those shores and find themselves on other shores. But that's not really what happened to the Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto, and it's not really what happened to the Jews in Poland. The Jews in Poland were not exiled. The Jews in Poland were sent up smokestacks. There were 3,300,000 Jews living in Poland before the war. And after the war, there were 300,000 survivors. 90% of Polish Jewry were exterminated, eliminated. Seven-tenths of European Jewry were killed. They were not just brought to another location. They were not just reshuffled. They were destroyed. And when you think about that, that sort of deepens the question. Because the Meshachachma told us, the is when they start assimilating, you send them to another place. That's not what happened. They weren't sent to another place on this planet. They were sent to another place somewhere else. And if we want to really understand this, I think we have to delve a bit deeper into the issue. And that's something that the Amik Dover explains to us. The Nasiv on the Tochacha explains a very interesting phenomena. He says, people make a mistake about Tzachar Onish. They think Hashem stands there, looks at a person and judges, you're a good guy, you're not a good guy, I'm going to give you reward, I'm going to give you punishment. <coughs> says the Amik Dover, it's not true. Rather, when Hashem created the world, Hashem created laws of nature. Physical laws in the physical world, spiritual laws in the spiritual world. And what that means is, when the Pesach says, That's a mitzvah, that's a reality. If you keep the mitzvahs, there's a system. The system is that this is what will happen. You'll get great, great blessing in this world. If you violate the mitzvahs, you will be cursed in this world. But says the Amikdover, it's not like Hashem intervenes. Those are the laws of nature. He says it's almost like when you go to the doctor, and then the, the woman says, Doctor, I don't understand why my husband had a heart attack. Well, ma'am, do you know the fact that he weighs 380 pounds, smokes two packs of cigarettes a day, and eats a steak and a half for dinner? Do you think that, well, yeah, but he's such a, he has such a good heart. And he's only 38, how could it be? The doctor is not the one who determines whether he will live or die. The doctor can give you advice. Cut down on your cholesterol. Cut down on your caloric intake. Exercise. The advice of the doctor, you either heed and get well, or you ignore and you die. Says the Amic Dover, if it could be, that's the way Hashem created the world. Hashem put laws of nature in the physical world, laws of nature into the spiritual world. Those laws are very simple. If the Jewish people do what they're supposed to, then the laws of nature say they'll have tremendous blessing. Their borders will be powerful and protected. They'll be invincible. They'll be exalted. That's the law of nature. And if they violate it, then the law of nature says that they will be destroyed. Avram Chaim Foyer told me the following story. He was a Rav for many years in Florida. And Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky would come down for a number of weeks in the winter. And Rabbi Foyer would learn Bechavrusa with Rabbi Yaakov. But the, sort of the arrangement was as follows. If anyone wants to ask questions, anyone wants to come, they have to stop, and Rabbi Yaakov has to be available. Every morning they would learn together for a number of hours, and from time to time people would come in, ask various questions. Rabbi Foyer describes at one time a principal of one of the girls' high schools was in Florida, 
made an appointment, came into Rav Yaakov and said, how could I teach the girls? How could I teach them when they asked me the question, where was God during the Holocaust? How am I going to answer them this question? This was back in the early 80s. Rav Yaakov says, that's a question? I was in Europe well before the war, and I left Europe. And if you want to know how it could be, I'll explain it to you. It's really quite simple. Rav said, before I left Europe, I was afraid. I knew that I was in places like Kovner, Vilna, powerful Torah centers. And I was aware that going to America was very, very dangerous. I went to the Kovnerov, and I asked the Kovnerov, should I go? I said to him, the streets of America, the streets of America are trafe. How could I go there? And the Kovnerov said to me, you may be right. The streets of America are trafe now, but it will not be long before the streets of Kovna are trafe. And then Yaakov said, the Kovnerov told me the following story. He said, this very past Pesach, I became aware of the following. This is Kovna. This is not Paris. This is not Vilna. There's no Chilol Shabbos here. And I became aware of the following pact. Some of the very powerful Balabatim had made a group. They decided that the Shabbos after Pesach, they were going to open their stores on the main thoroughfare of Kovna. It had never been done before. And because they realized what a tremendous amount of noise it was going to make, the deal was that they each had to put a very heavy mashkon, a very expensive amount of money with the toughest guy in the group. And the rule was simple. If you do not open your store, you lose that collateral, that full amount of money is lost. They made their pact, and the Shabbos after Pesach they had made up, they were going to open their stores. I got wind of it, and that Yontif, right by Yisker, I got up to speak. And I said, Rebosai, we know that the neshamas of the deceased come back during Yisker. And I have something to say to the neshamas of the deceased. Yaakov, Yaakov, do you know that your grandson is here today? Your grandson is here today and he's made up to be Machal Shabbos. Miriam, Miriam, you passed away just 25 years ago. Your grandson is sitting right here and he's part of the group to be Machal Shabbos. Moshe, do you know your son? Your son is sitting here and he's joined the group. And he went through name by name each of the relatives, each of the children, and apparently he said, I won that battle. I broke the group and they didn't open up. So I won today, but it won't be long. If it's six months, if it's a year, they're going to do it again. <laughs> Says the Kovner of Terev Yaakov, you're correct. The streets of America are trafe. The streets of Kovner will soon be trafe. My father grew up in Berlin. You see, my grandfather was <clears throat> born in Poland and escaped the Polish army. And my father was born in Berlin and despite very, very strange circumstances, was from. And for his bar mitzvah, my grandmother decided to take my father back to Zaklikov, to Poland. And my father described to me that he felt very insecure. Here he was in the modern Berlin. <clears throat> Granted, he was from, but nothing like the, the Haim, nothing like Europe. And he says when he first arrived, Itaka felt very, very inadequate. Everyone had long beards, payas. But then when the boys walked over to him and said, want some kielbasi? some Polish treif salami. And my father described that what you saw on the outside was very, very different than what was doing on the inside. Socially, you had to be from, but many, many, many people had long ago given up the tamadover, the essence of it, and were going through the motions. Rabbi Yaakov said to Rabbi Foyer, if you want to know what happened, it's very simple. When the Balabas, when the owner sees that the business is headed south, he burns it before it goes bankrupt. Hashem saw the generation was headed this way. Hashem burnt it before it went that way. If you want to know where was God during the Holocaust, Hashem was saving the nation. Sometimes to save the tree, you have to cut off a limb. And sometimes the operation is quite, quite painful. But the reality is that that is the cost sometimes of saving the patient. And if you'd like to understand the answer to the great secret, where was Hashem? It's not a secret. 
We don't have time for it now, but if you have a chance, listen to Shmuz 33, where it was God during the Holocaust. A very graphic, detailed pers- perspective from, from a historical vantage point that you see Hashem right there bringing Adolf Hitler into power, bringing the Nazi regime into its glory, specifically for one reason, to kill out European Jewry. And the reason is quite simple, because by doing that, that part of the nation, that limb, is cut off, the tree itself remains. Now, if I were to have said this concept to you, standing here in 1945, I believe you would have said that I'm out of my mind. I believe had I answered this type of approach in 1945, anyone with any das would have said it's absurd. Because do you understand what happened? It wasn't just six million people that were killed. All the great rabbinim were destroyed. All the great yeshivas were destroyed. There was nothing left. The base medrash on every corner the regular Balabas who knew Mishnayas or maybe even Shas didn't exist anymore. If you walked onto these shores, you walked into the <coughs> typical United States scene in 1945, there was no Torah anywhere. You had a small yeshiva. <coughs> Moshe Feinstein used to sit around the table with maybe 20 guys. Rav Aaron used to have 20, 30 guys in a place called Lakewood, New Jersey. There was Torah Vadas and there was almost nothing else. A few yeshivas here and there with a very, very small, minute amount of people learning. Torah was dead. If you asked any intelligent assessment of the situation, in 1945, at the end of the war, Torah was killed. Granted, Hitler didn't succeed in killing all of the nation, but the source of sustenance, which is Limina Torah, was finally extinguished. It would be only another generation or two maximum before the Jewish people were no longer. But a strange thing happened between then and now. A very strange thing. We see a very different scene. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of young men learning. You can't name yeshiva now that's not busting and it seems. You go to Lakewood, New Jersey and have 5,000 young men learning. You go to Panovich, you go to Mir, Inner Stroll. Thousands upon thousands. It seems like every street corner in Brooklyn opens up with a new yeshiva and they're flooded. Do you know they say that since the great yeshivas of Surah and Pompadisha they have never been in our history these many men learning Torah full-time as we have today, and maybe we've exceeded the numbers of previous times. It seems that Torah flourishes at an unprecedented level. But if you or I were on the scene in 1945, we never could have called it that way, because it didn't happen, it didn't exist, it wasn't possible. According to the ways of nature, the Jewish nation were finished. But a strange thing happened, and that is a tremendous rebirth Torah has recreated itself. There's been a tremendous thesaurus. And we find ourselves in a place that no one ever dreamt about, no one ever would have imagined. And I guess the question is, where does this leave us now? Where are we in the point of history? I guess, you know, you don't have to be too studious to recognize that some strange things are happening. After 1900 years of exile, we find ourselves back in our land. A land that was desolate, that was a wasteland, has now been rebuilt. Rebuilt to an extent that it's the most powerful nation in the region. <clears throat> been rebuilt to the extent that it rivals most cities, states in Europe. Amazingly, there's a tremendous rebirth of Torah. Amazingly, the Jewish people has survived. And amazingly, there's a Balchuva movement where we see children of grandparents who weren't from, sometimes great-grandparents who weren't from, coming back to become real B'nai Torah. You see a revival, you see a change, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, I get it. Every description that the Nevi'im told us about what was to be at the end of the days were fully fulfilled between the years 39 and 45. We see Nisim, that our nation has been replanted in our land. We see the Jewish nation surviving. We see a rebirth of Torah. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize that Mashiach is right here.
close, imminent, but a step away. And that part is very encouraging. But the part that's not so encouraging is the fact that 90% of our nation, 90% of our people have no connection to anything Jewish. Have no connection to anything to do with our religion. 10% of our people are flourishing, are steiging, are growing, reaching heights. And 90% of our nation are completely, completely destroyed. They're not there. And what does it mean? It's a little bit difficult to call the shot, but I will tell you this. It seems like everything is headed up. We've come back. We've grown. If you'd ask the Meshachachna system, it seems we're right at the peak. And it seems like all we have to do is take one more step, take one more charge forward, and the Jewish nation will finally arrive, will finally bring Mashiach, and we will be forever as we're supposed to be. But if we miss that point... If it hits that peak, and instead of reaching the apex, kind of just starts to drop off, then I'm afraid to say the cycle could continue the way it's been for millennium. It could happen again, and we could end up on the other end of that cycle. And that's a very, very frightening thought. The pivot of it all, is Rashi, Rashi says, the pivot of it all is one thing, if you'll be Omel Torah, if you'll continue learning but laboring in Torah study, breaking your head, thinking, learning, delving deeply, getting into Pshat, that's the greatest nourishment, that's the greatest nutrient, that is the absolute power of the Jewish nation because that brings everything else. Everything else that you want to think will bring Jewish continuity is nice, it's cute, you could wave flags, you could wear t-shirts, you could have all kinds of bond drives, it's nice, but you're missing the boat. It's about one thing and one thing only. How much your omel in Torah is the nourishment, is the fuel, is the heartbeat of the nation. And that, my friends, is something that's within our power, that's within our strength. It's been a very, very rocky 2,000 years. And the Kiddush is that it's not supposed to be this way. The 2,000 years of bloodshed and torture was not supposed to be. It didn't have to be. The Jewish nation is supposed to be exalted. It's supposed to be an Amanifchar. It's supposed to be revered and feared. It's supposed to be, we're supposed to be in our borders, in our land, protected. And this strange phenomena of exile that we've been through is something that's not supposed to be there, yet it's here. And when you hear various descriptions as to the reasons why, the reasons for anti-Semitism, because the Jews are rich and the Jews are powerful and everyone's jealous, and you see that each answer, one by one, is so frivolous, so empty, never addresses the issue, and you begin to hear exactly what the Meshachachma says, there's only one reason, and that is because the Jewish nation have a very particular mission. And to protect that nation, Hashem will guard us, even if it means putting us through exiles, sending us from shore to shore, because we arrive and we're foreign, we don't belong there, we re-commit to Torah, we become stronger and stronger, and that lasts for a generation, two, three, and it starts going down, and we're sent into exile again, and that's the story of the exiles, that's the story of our Gullus. And even when you reach something like the Holocaust that seems so inexplainable, the answer also from a very, very distant vantage point is simple to understand. The Jewish nation has a very real derachateva. We are not like the Goyim. And it's not okay to be okay. It's okay for them to be okay, but the Jewish nation either get bracha or kola, we either grow and accomplish, live to our purpose, or Rahman al we face the other part of it. And that is the nature of the world. That's where Hashem created the world. I want to close with one last observation. That is, when you boil down the Nazi ideology, you find something very interesting. Their rationale for killing Jews was not political. It wasn't even scapegoating in any sense. It was not even ideological. It was really quite simple. And if you read Mein Kampf, then it's worth reading. It had to do with one simple thing. I hate the Jew. The Jew is vermin. The Jew should be destroyed. When you step on a mouse, a rat that you kill, you help the world by eliminating vermin. So too we despise the Jews 
and we kill them with the same calmness as we kill any other vermin. And this theme emanated throughout all the writings and throughout the Nazi speeches. There was an understanding that the Third Reich was the exalted nation and the Jews were the cursed people. And it's very interesting to note that one of the real heroes of the Holocaust was the, the Blujavarov, Rabbi Sol Spira, who lost everything. <clears throat> lost his Hasidus, Hasidim, his wife, his children. He lost everything. <clears throat> he lived through, rebuilt it all, created a new Hasidic dynasty here, and <clears throat> really was one of the ultimate heroes of the Holocaust. And he told over the following story. He said at a certain point he was in a Janowska road camp. And as part of the fun that the Nazis would have, every day when they would leave the slave labor camp, they would line them up at the gate, and they'd do the following. Some Nazi would stand there on a microphone and say, Who is the most exalted nation on the face of the planet? And every Jew would have to say, The Third Reich! Who is the most cursed nation on the face of the planet? The Jews! And this taunting would go on and on and on. Who's the most exalted nation? The Third Reich! Who's the most cursed? The Jews! on the way out of camp in the morning and on the way back. When they came back to camp, before they were allowed to the barracks, they'd be lined up and they'd go through the same procedure. The Blujava Rebbe didn't have a beer or a payas then, and interestingly enough, became friendly with a Hungarian secular lawyer. This fellow Horowitz was not religious at all, but apparently they became friends and they helped each other out. One day, this Horowitz says to the Blujava Rebbe, Listen, my friend, because you are such a dear friend, I got one for you and one for me here. Blizzard said, what is it? The cyanide pill. We don't have to suffer anymore. Take the pill, you'll take your life, and we don't have to be here anymore. Blizzard said, listen, I appreciate your friendship, but my life is not mine to take. It wasn't given. It was given to me. It's not mine to take. I can't, I can't do this. And Phil Howard said, fine, your decision. That night they came back to the labor camp, they're lined up at the gates, and the Nazi begins the chant, Who is the most exalted nation on the face of the planet? Before anyone answers, his heart screams out, The Jews! And the Nazi says, What? Who said that? I said, Who is the most exalted nation on the face of the planet? The Jews! The Jews! The Jews! Screams out Horowitz, and he falls lifeless to the floor. He had taken a cyanide capsule and died. And to me, this is a very powerful, powerful story, illustrative of a concept. And that concept is something that the Nazis understood very clearly. It was not an issue of ideology, not one of religion. It was understanding that there is an exalted, revered nation. And that is us. And our task, our mission, what we've been charged with, is to be the Amaskula, the Ner Lagoyim, the unique holy people, Bonim Atem Lashem. That requires a very different conduct and a very different way of approaching life. The secret to that greatness that is expected from a Jew is Limina Torah, because that is the root of it all, that's the nourishment of it all, it's the pivotal point of everything in the individual's life, in the life of the nation. If that's there, if it's present, if it's vibrant, the nation will flourish, the individual will flourish. If that's missing, Oivei and Oivei, there are many, many ways that Hashem will bring it back, many of which have been very, very painful over the generations. May HaKadosh Baruch grant us that this Tisha B'Av is the last one. The next one should be <coughs> celebrated as a Chag with the Beis Migdash rebuilt next year.